1999, and there's one big thing on NASA's mind. The space agency is going back to Mars. They are launching the Mars Climate Orbiter, one of two weather satellites set to arrive at our sister planet. The hope? Find evidence of water, maybe even signs of life. For almost 10 months, the spacecraft hurls through the black of space. And in September, the red contours of Mars finally come into full view. Scientists back on Earth hold their breath. As the orbiter hurdles towards the Martian atmosphere, maybe the scientists think about their children, their children's children, what the possible discoveries might mean for generations to come. Minutes pass, seconds pass, and then complete and total silence. At first, maybe they thought it was a malfunction, a blip in the software, but no. One of America's unmanned spacecraft is missing and presumed lost on another planet. It would never be found. The Mars Climate Orbiter was sent to monitor the red planet's atmosphere. It apparently burned up in it. Now, you might think, this is just some space hijinks. Happens all the time. Well, it turns out that this particular loss was all because the units of measurements got, what's the phrase? Ah, yes, totally fucked. It turns out that the manufacturer of this satellite, Lockheed Martin Astronautics, used English units of measure when they... Meanwhile, back at NASA, the scientists were calculating in metric, not English units. Uh, When the spacecraft carried out the commands, it had the effect of slightly altering the trajectory. It's an embarrassing answer for NASA. This multi-million dollar error is probably the most famous example of our measurement woes in the U.S. But really, our relationship to the metric system has always been cursed. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. The story of this small measurement conversion error starts before anyone was thinking of looking for water on Mars. Actually, one could argue it began 228 years ago this week, on March 21st, 1794, when one man's attempt to bring the meter to the U.S. goes wrong in every way imaginable. Shipwrecks, revolts, pirates, plus the secret power of units you've likely never thought of before. We'll measure in after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hmm, let's see. We've got inch, foot, yard, mile, fathom. Then there's pound, ounce, dram, gallon, quart tablespoon. Oh, hi. Didn't see you there. Oh, I was just trying to list from memory all the different measurements we use for length, volume, and mass in the imperial system of the United States. Me, personally, I prefer the metric system. I don't ever use it in my daily life. Oh, well, except for that one thing. Oh, wait, no, that's measured in ounces. So, yeah, I basically never use the metric system. Even though it's so much simpler, everything is divisible by 10, and you don't have to deal with random units like township, furlong, barleycorn. Like, what even is that? And I'm far from the only American in history to criticize this system. Even our founding fathers hated it. That's right. Thomas Jefferson and George Washington both spent years trying to standardize measurements across the former colonies. And let's be honest, it would also be great to avoid the pesky imperial system, it being English and all. And as luck would have it, around the time that the fathers were founding, thinkers in France were cranking out a hot new measurement system. It would do away with the confusing traditional units of old, and it would come to be known as le système métrique, the metric system. And the French were happy to help their old pals in the U.S., not just because science rules, but because by the late 18th century, France was in the midst of its revolution, a violent power struggle between rich and poor, royal and peasant. But what does revolution have to do with measurement? Well, a lot. First and foremost, measurement, like revolution, is about power. Whoever has the power to set measurements has the power. It's like having an invisible third party refereeing transactions, whether you're buying something small, like a nice fromage, or buying something bigger, like land. Measures are a convention. They define our relationships and our society, and they define relative power. Who has the power to define those measures defines who can rule a society. That's Ken Alder. He's a science historian and professor at Northwestern University. And while the blood and the violence usually get the most play when it comes to revolutions, measurement is one of the ultimate symbols of change for new nations. This happened during the French Revolution, which Ken says had a much softer, nerdier side. In this great 18th century moment, everyone could be enlightened and the products and the knowledge that science provided could be made into something accessible to everybody, that people could become rational actors and think things through for themselves and banish superstition and and people could reason with science in ordinary life as well. In other words, science was key to the goal of liberté, égalité, fraternité that the revolutionaries were fighting for. France had their own measurement issues at the time, 
There were an estimated 250,000 different weights and measures used across the country. As you can imagine, that would make buying that fromage quite a monster. French people had been asking for a better system for years. So promoting a new universal standard was as much about government power as it was about cleaning up messy systems. In any case, the French went full force into developing a new measurement system. That's when they came up with the idea that every weight and measure should be divisible by 10 and that the standards themselves should be universal and based on nature rather than local and traditional. Smart, right? For weight, they chose units based on the density of water. And for length... The idea was to define the meter as a natural unit based on the size of the world. Literally, the whole ass earth. <laughs> ass earth. But why, you ask? The meter belonged to everyone just as the earth belonged to everyone. The French took these numbers and turned them into physical objects, a meter stick and a small one-kilogram cylinder called the grave, both made of copper. Because how else are you going to spread your new measurement system around the world in 1793? Which brings us right back to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. All the founding fathers needed was for France to send over their hot new standard, et voila, one less vestige of the English Empire and the United States. But who could possibly take on the great mission of delivering these measures to the Americans? Thinking, thinking, thinking. Sacre bleu! Pourquoi pas Joseph Dombey? So, you've probably never heard of Monsieur Dombey. He was a botanist by training and had just spent the better part of a decade in Chile and Peru cataloging trees and flowers and all matters of life. He'd been living back in France just as the French were debating who to send to the U.S. with the tools of their metric system. And Dombey was down. His home country was in the midst of revolution. Not the chillest of vibes. He was eager to get back to the Americas. He even gushed to Thomas Jefferson about visiting the U.S. In a letter, Dombey wrote, Reading your work on Virginia... <coughs> I'm sorry, I... I thought the accent was a good idea. It's clearly not. Let me take that again. <clears throat> Reading your work on Virginia inflames my courage and makes me want to see the sights that you have described so well. I have just asked the government for permission to go and botanize for two or three years in North America. I will be very happy, sir, to be able, before I die, to show you all the feelings that you inspired in me during my stay in Paris, where you showered me with kindness. So Dombey was a Jefferson stan, a plant dad, sort of the perfect science ambassador for the French and the Americans. This was a pretty big mission for just one dude. There was no time to waste. In January 1794, Dombey set sail. With the meter stick and the grave, aka the kilogram, tucked neatly onto an American sailboat called the Soon. Really, an ironic name for a boat that wouldn't be arriving anytime soon. Usually, the voyage across the Atlantic would take about a month, 
For such a trip, you'd hope for a good balance of clear skies and strong winds. But for Dombey and the crew aboard his vessel, they got less clear skies and more strong winds. Actually, they ran into a massive storm. So big that Dombey's ship was blown off course and crash-landed in the Caribbean in March of 1794. The silver lining of this unfortunate detour? France just happened to have a colony there called Guadeloupe, a tropical paradise with glittering beaches and big, beautiful, swaying palm trees. Magnifique! The only problem? Guadeloupe was at that time in the same distracted state as France. The Revolutionary Party had a command at Porto Petra. The governor resided at Bastère, joined by such as wished to preserve the old order of things in the colony. This is Joseph-Philippe-François Deleuze, a French librarian and naturalist. He wrote a biography about Dombey back in 1804. So he's extremely dead. But we got a voice actor to make him come alive. So yeah, Guadeloupe was also reeling from the French Revolution, though the island itself had very specific issues. And like Deleuze said, parts of the island were still somewhat attached to the old way of doing things in France. The plantation owners that lived in Guadeloupe were upset that the new French Republic was trying to put an end to chattel slavery. So even though Dombey sought refuge with his fellow Frenchmen, as an emissary of the French Revolution, he wasn't exactly in friendly territory. It became clear rather quickly that Dombey wouldn't be resuming his metric journey anytime soon. During the night, he was seized and thrown into prison at the Bay of Mao. Dombey is taken hostage. So as the meter and the cav sit on the ship back at port, Dombey is locked in colonial prison. And if this was a movie trailer, here's the part where I would say, bringing the metric system to the founding fathers just got a lot harder. And just like a Hollywood film, we're embellishing some of the details here. That's because Dombey isn't really written about too much. So a lot of the details of his metric mission are lost to time. Over the next few days, things only get worse. A mob fighting for Dombey's release swarms the prison and forces the government to let him out. Once Dombey is out of prison, he probably wishes he was back inside because things on the street of Guadeloupe are not looking good. The mob is still angry and they're looking to start shit with the people who locked Dombey away in the first place. Dombey likely has zero interest in playing a role in any kind of revolt. Remember, he just wanted to deliver the metric system to Jefferson and get back to studying flowers. So he tries to calm the mob. But Deleuze wrote that that doesn't go his way either. Dombey, having in vain employed entreaties to oppose this violence, placed himself before the leaders of the mob. In struggling with whom he fell into the Salt River and was taken out without signs of life. Yeah, Dombey tries to stop the mob with an earnest speech delivered by the mouth of a river and then just fully falls into the raging waters. Dude truly cannot catch a break. 
Dombe comes down with a fever, but eventually he's ready to get back on the boat, back to his metric mission. And remember at the beginning of the episode when we said this mission was cursed? Well, girly, we haven't even gotten to the pirates yet. Avast me hearties, yo-ho, after the break. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Shiver me timbers. We're back. Before the break, we learned that the metric system was a product of the French Revolution and that the New Republic wanted to ship their meters and calves to the United States as a way to truly universalize their new measure. So they tapped Joseph Dombe, who was swept off course and caught up in the revolutionary politics of a small Caribbean island. And after a bit of a kerfuffle and a really bad fever, he was free again, getting ready to deliver the metric system to America by sailboat. It's a bright, shining Caribbean day. Men scamper up and down a creaking dock as they load up the ship set to take Dombe to America. A light breeze rolls off the ocean, muffling their hurried commands. Throw this trunk here. Hide that flag there. Ready the sails now. When everything is ready, the ship takes off. Dombe is tucked amongst the crew as unassuming as he could possibly be. Crashing through the turquoise breaks, everyone mutters hopeful prayers. They're nearly in the deep blue waters of the open ocean, nearly in the clear. Then, bam, two pirate ships appear out of nowhere. They circle the ship like hungry sharks. They've been hired by the British. Bad news for the very French Dombe. While the crew tries to defend the ship, Dambe changes out of his French clothes and quickly puts on a disguise. It was plain, ordinary, something that wouldn't draw any more unwanted attention. And apparently, in 1794, that meant wearing a Spanish sailor's uniform. Sure, a bit of cosplay to avoid being taken hostage again. Why not? And pretty soon, the ship's crew can't defend themselves any longer. Really, they never had a chance. Pirates fling ropes over the ship's railing, pulling it closer and closer. They board Dombe's ship and seize all of the cargo. Eventually, Dombe is identified as a Frenchman, despite his clever disguise. The pirates take the ship the cargo, and their new French hostage to the nearby British island of Montserrat, where Dombe is thrown into yet another dingy prison. The meter and the Grave, though, meet a brighter fate. 
sort of. All the cargo on the ship, including those trunks carrying the metric tools, was auctioned off. The meter stick and the grave did eventually make it stateside, but they ended up in the hands of a land surveyor who probably didn't understand what they were. So they never got to Thomas Jefferson. Not that it would have mattered anyways. That's because there were other issues that would make bringing any new measures to the U.S. pretty tough. After Dombey's failed mission in 1794, American sentiments had changed regarding France. Many felt that the French were too radical, so a measurement system from France was sort of poo-pooed. Also, Congress didn't want to make a change that would force merchants to give up their traditional measuring instruments. It can be really expensive to do that. But most importantly, America seemed to be doing fine with their imperial measures left over from the British. Here's science historian Ken Alder again. As a very large economy that has lots of complicated internal domestic exchange, we can get by pretty well with standard weights and measures. According to Ken, trade between states was so strong back then, and even now, that we can trade pretty efficiently with the imperial system. So the metric system was sort of pushed to the wayside, even after its long and arduous journey. That's a pirate joke, by the way. Let me have my fun. On the surface, things have stayed pretty metricless in the U.S. since then. Every few decades since the early 1800s, people float the idea of adopting the metric system again and again, but the average American still measures in inches, gallons, and pounds. But that doesn't mean America is completely divorced from the metric system. In 1975, President Gerald Ford made the metric system the preferred system for trade and commerce when he signed the Metric Conversion Act. Since then, the federal government has required packages to include both metric and imperial units on commercial products. So if you see products at the store, you may spot stuff like milliliters and fluid ounces on the packaging. Because even if the federal government prefers the metric system, Americans still widely use the imperial system. What this means is that the United States is in a sort of measurement limbo. If this sounds confusing, that's because it is. Remember from the very top of the show, that whole Mars orbiter snafu? The technology on the spacecraft was engineered by an American contractor using imperial units. Meanwhile, NASA scientists used metric units, which led to that totally avoidable and totally catastrophic conversion error. The consequences extend beyond science and big catastrophes at NASA. There are errors with prescription medication, and small American businesses can be excluded from the international market for using imperial units on their packaging. So why can't America just avoid all this and get her ass fully on the metric system? Well, Ken says it goes back to power, especially transfers of power. Countries tend to shift their measurement systems when they're going through other massive changes. It has tended to happen because there's a radical change in sovereignty, a revolution, as in France, during 
programs of national unification, as in Italy or Germany, where series of small little sub-nation states gathered together to create new nations. It usually takes a literal revolution to implement new standards of measure. The United States is a country that has not been through a radical change. It itself is a creation of a long, complicated, but reformist past, not a revolutionary past. And it's been 250 years since the U.S. has had any fundamental change in its government. And so there has been a kind of muddling through with good enough. America, the land of good enough. Put that on a bumper sticker. There is something parochial about it. We've been able to get away with it being parochial because we're big enough and wealthy enough to get away with it. A small country can't get away with being parochial as easily anymore. The U.S. is okay with being sort of backwards. And we can be backwards. We're big enough, strong enough, and good enough seems to be working out good enough. Which makes me think about the sad little Frenchman we left in that dingy prison after being captured by pirates, Joseph Dombey. For years, no one in France knew what happened to Dombey, or seemed to care. They were too busy with the revolution. But the truth is that he ended up dying in that prison in Montserrat, about a month after he was taken captive. Without a friend to console him, and in distant captivity, adding one to the list of those who have died martyrs to their zeal of natural history. That's Joseph-Philippe François Deleuze, our French naturalist again. About 10 years after Dombey's death, he wrote a 29-page eulogy on history's unluckiest scientist. He begins... Far differently circumstanced are men who sacrifice their time, their fortune, their health, to seek, in unknown climes, the materials necessary to establish the theories of ingenious men. Prompted by these considerations, the professors of the museum are anxious to record in their annals the services which Joseph Dombey has rendered to natural history, and the name of Dombey will become dear to the friends of science and of humanity. So let's pour one out for the Dombeys of the world. The folks who venture out, who risk it all, not for their own glory, but for the advancement of knowledge. You know, I tried to come up with some really poignant final thing to say about Dombey and his ill-fated journey, but my own words seem to fail me here. So I'm going to borrow from an unconventional source, actress Kirstie Alley, something she tweeted upon learning of renowned physicist Stephen Hawking's death. You had a good go at it. Thanks for your input. Fin. Get it? Because it's French. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Julie Carley. Next week, we're going on a crime-filled history domino journey. So he was running guns and drugs out of some wagon and lying on his name and where he's from. This is like 19th century Breaking Bad. The rest of our team are producers Amy Padula and Sarah Craig. Our associate producer is Ramoy Phillip. 
Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Katie Feather and Andrea B. Scott. J.P. Wright played the voice of Joseph-Philippe François Deleuze. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at CSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. Oh, and if this episode has inspired you to learn more about the metric system, check out nist.gov forward slash metric. Or you can follow at NIST, N-I-S-T, on Twitter. They have a lot of fun educational materials on converting to the metric system. Special thanks to Elizabeth Benham at NIST, Keith Martin, Becky Carley, Caroline Keller, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a five-star rating? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I am interested in the history of the banal. Things that are invisible, but that operate all the time around us, shape our lives almost more than the things that are visible to us.